Well, good morning. Good morning. I'm excited to look to God's Word with you. I will confess uh, off the top, this isn't exactly the service that I had planned for Baptism Sunday. Um, We were supposed to do this baptism on Easter Sunday, and uh, that was really exciting. I was excited about that. I had picked uh, the text in Romans 6, which was this sermon that was going to just walk through the gospel and show us how baptism relates, and I was really, really excited about these plans that I had made, and then uh, COVID struck, and then the baptismal tank kind of deflated, and, uh, and it was just a bit of a mess. And the Lord had different plans for us. And so you ask, okay, well, what are the plans that the Lord has for us? And uh, today we're going to be talking about paying your pastor, and I'm not kidding, and handling allegations within the church. So if I could just acknowledge, that's a bit awkward. So if you're here and you're a guest and you think that's odd, yes, that's true. Um, I perhaps wouldn't have chosen this text uh, on a day when we're going to have such a high volume of guests. And that's what I wrestled through all week, but I can tell you that I came to a place where I just thought, man, we talk about how God is sovereign, right? He's in control. And I believe that with all of my being. I need to believe that even as I'm writing this sermon, I thought to myself. And I stand here this morning convinced in my heart that this is exactly what God has for us today. This is the text that he would have us hear. He doesn't make mistakes. And then I thought, you know, perhaps you're here and the thing that keeps you from the church and from engaging with the Lord is not actually some intellectual doubt. It's not that you need to hear the gospel explained again, which is what I had planned for you. It's instead a deep-seated distrust of the church and her leaders. Maybe somebody's hurt you or wronged you. And so you've got a very thick wall up. Leadership is hard. Uh, our, our culture doesn't know what to do with leaders. Uh, we, we ebb and flow. So there's, there's a generation where we, where we worship leaders, right? We deify leaders, and we turn a blind eye to all of their obvious flaws and faults because that's our leader. That's a mistake. That's a ditch. But, but there's been generations that have gone into that ditch. Our generation, at least my generation, is, is on the ditch on the other side of the road where we love tearing leaders down, right? We're like kids around the pinata with the sticks, just smiling with glee. That, that's how we are around leaders whenever we see even a hint of humanity in them. We, we just love ripping them down. And that's a ditch on the other side. So how do we walk through the middle? How do we relate to leaders? How do we do this leadership thing, particularly in the church? If we follow the ebbs and flows of culture, we're going to wind up a mess, Is there a better way? Well, our text this morning tells us that there is a better way. It gives us tangible, realistic instructions that take into account the fact that leadership is needed. By the way, hear that. We need leaders in this world. Leadership is needed. It's hard. should be appreciated. But then it also holds intention the fact that leaders are sinners who sin. And so how do we navigate through? Well, that's what this passage is all about. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25 And so if you would look there with me in your Bibles now, I should have told you sooner, I'm going to give you a second to turn there. In fact, as I give you a second to turn there, let's just uh, just take a moment and be, be still before the Lord and just invite him to prepare us to hear from his word.
Heavenly Father, we wait upon you today, and we thank you, God, that you promise us that as your word goes forth, it never returns void, and that that promise holds true for every bit of your word, um, including the passage we're about to read this morning. And the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need to be corrected. We need to be appointed in the right direction, and so we expect that you will do that this morning. So I ask for the help of your spirit to guard my tongue as I navigate through potential landmines. Lord, I don't know how people will hear this today. I, wanna, I want it to be said right, and I need your help. And Lord, I pray for the help of your spirit as we hear. Lord, would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see what's in your word, hearts that are soft to respond to you. And we ask for all of this in faith, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25. Hear now God's holy, inspired, living, and active word to us today. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So before we jump into the the thrust of this passage, I do want to address verse 23, because even as I read it, you probably found yourself thinking, hmm, that was odd. Uh, We're we're talking about leadership in the church, and this is really serious. And Timothy, by the way, let's talk about your drinking habits. And then he jumps back in, and you just think, what is that? Well, can I just remind you that this is a real letter written by a real guy to a real guy. The Apostle Paul is writing to young Timothy. He loves Timothy. And I imagine, I mean, we think that Paul probably dictated this letter. So you can imagine Paul is sitting there and he's, he's say, verbalizing this to someone who writes for him. And so Paul is walking through. He's thinking about the situation in Ephesus. He's thinking about the leadership crisis. And he's, he's talking about, you know, Timothy, you're going to have to do this and do this. And then he's in following this instruction. He says, and keep yourself pure. But then Paul, who loves Timothy, remembers, oh, I heard, I heard actually that, that Timothy stopped drinking wine altogether. And that now his stomach has given him issues. And so Paul's like, and by keep yourself pure, what I'm saying is not this. You, you need to drink a little bit of wine. Don't just drink water for the sake of your belly. And then he jumps back in. And, and so you wonder, what, what was happening? Why was Timothy only drinking water? We don't know. So let's move on. No, I'm kidding. We, we, don't, we don't know. So the, here's the best estimation that we have. If you look at this letter, uh, drunkenness was an issue in Ephesus. It was a live issue in the church. And Timothy is this young leader trying to lead a people in godliness, a people who struggle with drunkenness. And so it seems like Timothy, probably a noble idea, thought, I'm not even going to touch this stuff. I won't even touch alcohol. Which, 
It's, it's wise, I'd say. It's a good idea, considering what was going on. Except Timmy, Timothy had some stomach issues. And so by not drinking wine and only drinking water, Timothy was having, like, real problems. And whoever was bringing Paul the report tells him, like, man, Timothy's having problems with his belly. So, so Paul writes to young Timothy, who's doing his best, and he says, you keep yourself pure. And then he thinks, I know how he's going to hear that. And he, and he leans in and he says, but listen, you can drink a little bit of wine. Timothy needed to know that you're not actually going to be of any use in Ephesus if you're bedridden with tummy aches all the time, right? So that's noble what you're doing, but drink a little bit of wine. And then he jumps back into the text. I think that's what we have here in front of us. And maybe that just seems a little bit trivial, but I, I like that reminder. It reminds me of the reality of these letters, right? A real place, a real situation, real people. And it also reminds me that sometimes young leaders can do something that they think is really, really wise, and it winds up being actually kind of foolish. Um, as someone who does those things sometimes, I thought, that's good to know. Um, but it's an aside. Which, so in the ESV, um, if you've got your ESV Bible open, they've, the ESV translated it even with brackets. Uh, I don't know if brackets are in your Bible. That's not in the Greek. There's no Greek brackets. Uh, they put that in just to recognize the fact that this seems to be a bit of an aside for Timothy. But having dealt with the aside... Let's jump into the heart of this passage. And here, Paul is dealing very practically with Timothy and with us, by extension, about how we should relate with the elders in the church. In particular, he gives practical instructions on how we should honor, protect, discipline, and appoint elders. Four things he walks through here. So let's walk through them. First, Paul instructs us to honor the elders who rule well. Look at verses 17 to 18 where we see this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So this idea of honor, Paul had just addressed this in our previous passage when he was talking about the widows. And we saw last week that that idea of honor carries with it a relational aspect, but it also carried with it a financial aspect. That was true for the widows. It's true here. Paul's talking about both. That's why he talks about not muzzling the ox. He's, he's talking about finances. And he talks about these who, especially those who labor in teaching. And some folks have overheard this passage, and they've, they've thought that Paul's here breaking the eldership into kind of two classes. There's the teaching elders, and there's the ruling elders. But I think that's probably to overhear what he's saying. Because in chapter 3, he said that all of the elders need to be able to teach. I think what he's doing here is he's addressing something very practical that happens all the time. Even though all of the elders need to be able to teach, some of them are going to be particularly gifted in it. And they're going to enjoy using this gift, and people are going to learn from them. And so, naturally, they're going to take on the bulk of the teaching responsibilities. But that takes time. It takes time to pray through that, to labor through that, to prepare that. And so Paul says, if you've got someone who's laboring and preaching and teaching, you should honor them, right? Provide for them, care for them. And he wants them to know this isn't just my idea, this is God's idea. So he roots it, first of all, in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, which was God's instruction to the Israelites. And in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, the instruction says that when, you, when you've got an ox that's, that's treading the grain, I don't know if you can picture this in your mind, but there's like a little wooden post in the middle, then the ox is kind of walking around, and behind him there's a sledge that's breaking up the kernels. He says, if you've got an ox that's working hard for your grain, don't put a muzzle on his mouth so that as he gets hungry, he's getting frustrated, he can't get it. You take the muzzle off. He's working hard for your food. Let him eat a little bit. 
That's the instruction in Deuteronomy. Paul picks that up and says, if, if God cares about the beast being able to eat as he works, he also cares about your elder. So if somebody's laboring and preaching and teaching the word to you, take the muzzle off, make sure that they can feed their family as well. And then he roots this also in Jesus' instructions, which we find in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. When Jesus sent his disciples out into the mission field, he told them, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. So as the disciples go into a new community, a new city, and they're preaching the gospel, and someone says, hey, you know what, you can stay, stay with us and we'll feed you. He says, you might feel guilty and you might feel like, man, I need to get out of that house and I need to stop eating their food. And Jesus is telling his disciples, don't feel guilty. As you're laboring for the Lord, as you're laboring in the gospel, if people provide for you, then receive that with gratitude. So this is a clear, consistent, biblical principle. The Apostle Paul gave these exact same instructions to the church in Corinth. You can find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That's it. Now, I had someone ask me this week if I wished that I had asked someone else to preach this text because they said, well, that's probably awkward. And it probably should feel awkward. I'll tell you, it actually doesn't feel that awkward because you've always done this well for, for as long as I've been here. Um, Pastor Paul and Cornerstone kind of taught through this. And, and so never once have I felt like our family's been taken advantage of. We've always been able to provide. And I'm very thankful. So be encouraged. This is what God's word says. And you have done this. I'm very thankful. But I want to move into the second half of honor, because we mentioned how it's got this financial aspect to it, but there's also a relational aspect to honor. In Hebrews chapter 13, the author to the Hebrews walks through that honor aspect in this way. Hebrews 13, verse 17, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. So let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Now, this is an aspect where I, I just want to, while we're here in this text, I just want to be really clear. Moving forward, we need to be careful not to take our cues from the culture. Because I'm not sure if you've noticed, but in Canadian culture right now, we have developed a habit of spewing vitriol at leaders who are over us. Particularly those leaders that we don't like. You know, we... We say horrific things and we give ourselves full permission to skewer people. And if we continue to normalize those patterns of disrespect, then the leaders in our country are going to get worse and worse and worse. Do you know why? Because wise leaders don't willingly sign up to stand in front of a firing squad for four years. So the, the worse that we are with our leaders, the worse the leaders will become because we get the leaders that we deserve. That's the truth. And we're going to see that out there. And what I want you to hear this morning is that we need to be careful that we don't cultivate that in here. Because it's the water we're swimming in. Some churches abused their elders over the last two and a half years, if I could be candid. Uh, you, you did not. And I think, I'm so thankful for you. But a lot of churches did. And those churches now are going to have to replace the leaders in their church. They're going to need to find people to fill those vacancies. And guess what? There's not going to be a very long line of people willingly jumping into that after having watched the previous leaders be cannibalized by their people. Is there anything commendable in your elders? Has God given you men that love you? Not perfect men. I'll tell you, God hasn't given you a single perfect man. He gave you Jesus. But in terms of your eldership, but has he given you men that love you, men that love the Lord, 
Men that want to lead the church according to what God says in his word. If he has, then Paul says, honor them. And let me just give you a few practical ideas in case you're wondering, well, what would that look like? Here's a few practical considerations. Consider putting a reminder in your phone to pray for your elder and his marriage and his kids once a week. Or if you have a pressing concern in your life, rather than waiting for your elder to reach out to you to call, maybe you could reach out to them and and just let them know what's going on. Because believe it or not, they really do love you. And, and as one of the elders, it is, it all, I feel horrible every time I find out that something's happened and I didn't reach out. And We want to do this well. So that's a way that you could really bless them. Just let them know how they can be praying. Or if you think he's doing a good job, let him know from time to time. Give him a real practical, specific encouragement for something he's doing well. Because when we do it poorly, people will let you know about that, right? They'll give you a really specific example of what you did poorly. Balance that out a bit. Give them an encouragement for something they're doing specifically well. And, uh, and again, I want to say, you do this well. So this is a continue on. But I would say, just as we move forward as a church, I would love to hear increasingly from elders as they step down from their roles at the end of their term, I would love for them to say, it was hard. Uh, it was weighty. But it was a real privilege and a real honor. Uh, the people treated me well. And... Uh, And I I would happily step into the mantle again. As we cultivate that, I believe that the Lord will continue to entrust us with good leaders moving forward. We need to be stewards of the gift of leadership. We have to be stewards of any gift we received, and good leaders are a gift. Let's steward them well in this place. That's the first principle we see. The second principle is this. Paul says, protect the elders from malicious attacks. We find this instruction in verse 19, where Paul writes, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Paul says, before you even admit a charge against an elder, there need to be two or three witnesses. And if that requirement sounds familiar to you, it's because you're a whole Bible reader. And uh, and this is actually the requirement that Jesus lays out in Matthew 18 when he talks about church discipline. So you can feel free to flip back in your Bible. It would be helpful for you to see this there. In Matthew chapter 18... I'm going to read verses 15 to 16 here. Jesus teaches us, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Listen, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So according to Jesus, and then picked up by Paul in our passage today, if a person has an accusation, if they think that someone sinned against them, then before they they vent about it on social media, let's hear that, before they vent about it on social media, before they gossip about it with their circle of friends, they, they should go to the person who has wronged them. And if they go to the person who's wronged them and that doesn't work, then they should bring in two or three witnesses, invite them into the process. And Paul is teaching Timothy that you shouldn't even entertain an accusation until someone has followed those steps. Because Jesus has taught us how Christians handle offenses. He's taught us how Christians handle accusations. And so if somebody's not going to handle their offense or their accusation in a Christian way, he says, then you need to protect your elders from that, okay? Just don't, don't even give it the time of day. That's the rule he's laying out here. It's an important rule. But here's the piece where I want to address the elephant in the room. Um, because I would be shocked if there weren't a number of people here thinking, what about 
What about sexual abuse? Is that, are, are you suggesting that someone should go alone to their abuser and deal with that, or that you're not going to listen if someone brings that kind of charge? That, that is the elephant in the room, isn't it? I, I told, when the person asked me if this was awkward, I said, actually, the part about pay is, is pales in comparison to the second thing we're going to talk about. And so I want to be crystal clear. I want you to hear me. If someone brings an, an accusation of sexual abuse, that is, that is an entirely different thing. This text is not telling us that, that we're going to just wait, we need two or three witnesses. No, because God's word says that we need to be subject to the authorities who are over us. And so if someone brings an, an accusation of, of something illegal, well then Romans 13 comes into play. And Romans 13 tells us that we need to subject ourselves to the authorities. The authorities say, if an, an accusation of illegality is made, then you need to bring that to the police. And so that's what we will do. So I want to be crystal clear. If someone were to make an accusation about me or any of the elders here of something illegal, something like sexual abuse, we would be obligated by scripture to bring that to the police immediately. That's what we'll do. But that's the exception. So now, I don't want you to overhear it. So that is the exception to the rule. And a lot of churches got that wrong and they tried to handle illegal things in-house and that's unbiblical and unhelpful and a lot of people have been really, really hurt. And that breaks my heart. But it's the exception, and I don't want the exception to keep us from hearing this rule in the text because there's wisdom here and we need to reclaim this. Paul's reminding us here that the devil is no fool. He'll use any tool at his disposal to bring down godly leaders in the church. And perhaps now more than ever, the tool of accusation is a dangerous, dangerous weapon. Again, in our culture, in the, in the current ebb and flow, a person is, is guilty until proven innocent. But Paul says that's, actually, that's exactly the opposite of how we are to operate as the people of God. This is not how we do it. And we need to be careful that in the church that we are fair with one another. We're fair with all the people of God, as per Matthew 18. But then Paul picks up that principle and says, and, and particularly be fair with your leaders, Protect them from, from malicious people who try to bring them down with no credibility. People who slander them in the public square. Too many times, good, godly leaders have been gossiped out of churches with unfounded rumors, unsubstantiated claims. And Paul's saying that can't happen. If such a culture is allowed to uh, acclimatize itself in your church, if that is the culture of your church, if leaders see a pattern of, of their brothers being unfairly hung out to dry, you won't have any leaders left. So who's going to sign up for that? So moving forward, let's just make sure that our leaders know that we're resolved to protect them from malicious, unfounded accusations. If something is an illegal accusation, it goes straight to the police. But if something is not an illegal accusation, so let's be practical. So we're talking about here, let's say somebody feels like my elder uh, has, is, has developed a pattern of speaking to people disrespectfully. That could happen, right? They just, so they just feel like my, my elder is being really disrespectful. Okay, well then step one, as per Matthew 18, is that you should go to your elder and you should say, I'm noticing this pattern. Uh, you, you know, you said this and it's, it's rude, it's disrespectful and it's wrong. And according to Matthew 18, and I would argue most of the time, then your elder will say, I'm so sorry. And, and you've won your brother. Now you've got a better elder who's more careful with their words, who's walking with wisdom. But if they don't listen, then you come with two or three witnesses. And Timothy says, and that is the point where the church now becomes involved. 
It says, make sure that somebody's going through the process. And it brings us to the third principle. Because what happens now if you have an elder and, and, and the person's come with the accusation and there's no repentance, and the witnesses have come with the accusation and there's no repentance? Well, now what do you do? Do you, do you continue to protect that elder? Well, no, Paul says, third, rebuke the elders who persist in sin. So look again at verse 19. This time we'll read all the way to verse 21. This is again 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. So in these verses, Paul addresses the awful reality that from time to time, the church will find itself with sinful men in positions of authority. Now, of course, let me just be clear. Every elder in this congregation is a sinner, uh, chief of sinners, right? There are no perfect leaders in the church apart from Christ. He's the only perfect man who ever lived. This passage, however, is not about an elder who happened to sin. It's about those elders who persist in their sin. The elder who's been confronted by the accuser, been confronted by the witnesses, and still refuses to repent. What do you do with men like that? Well, Paul says, you do the same thing that we were told in Matthew 18. You exercise church discipline. In the final step of that process, in Matthew 18, verse 17, Jesus teaches us, and if he refuses to listen to them, that is the witnesses, then you tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And that step is exactly what we find prescribed in our passage this morning. Paul is reminding us that leaders don't get an exception clause from Matthew 18. Leaders don't have a a different process. The The elder who's in sin should be rebuked publicly. And in fact, Paul says that in this public rebuke, in Jesus' instructions, there's great wisdom. He says in verse 20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. He says, if if you take this seriously and you do this, you're going to find yourself with very sober elders. They need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. All of our elders, we will all confess, we all need to be reminded that we're prone to wander. All of us need to live faithfully, leaders included, to wage war with the sin in our lives. Because all of us, as members of Christ's church, will be held accountable if we persist in sin. And in verse 21, here's a, a verse that really stood out to me as I worked through the text this week. Paul leans in and he warns Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. So Paul leans in and he says, listen, there's a heavenly host that is listening to these instructions, Timothy. You get this right in the church. No matter the cost, you deal honestly and fairly with the sin in the church. Don't prejudge. Don't be impartial. Do what's right. John Stott, a great commentator, great preacher, says here, in the area of discipline, he must be scrupulously fair Cautious in accusing, that's what we talked about in the last point, and bold in rebuking, as the situation demands. Meaning, Timothy can't let a brother off the hook just because of his years of faithful service. 
He can't allow someone to slip off into the night for fear of tarnishing their long-built reputation. Even if Timothy's best friend were caught in sin, he would still need to follow the process outlined here. And here I just want to pause. Because this is one of the pieces where the culture looks at the sin in the church, and particularly the sin in leaders, the sin that the church sweeps under the rug and tries to hide. And the culture is furious about this. And, 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 I, and they come to us, and it feels like we just have to take the blow. But can I just, while we're here together, can I just say, I am so much more furious about this than the culture. It is so wrong. How many people through the centuries could have been protected if the church would have simply taken this passage seriously? How much pain could have been avoided? Time after time, we hear about allegations that are swept under the rug because the person implicated was above accountability. Time after time, I try to share the gospel with my neighbors, and they're hard to the gospel because of sin like this in so many churches. And we say, well, we can't be transparent about this. It would sink our movement. We can't put him under discipline. His family built this church. Here's a severance package. Just, or here's a, here's a parish in a community that's never heard about you. Or, or, or here's a settlement offering for the accusers. Let's just, it'll all blow over. Commentator Donald Guthrie writes, When faced with sinning elders, a spineless attitude is deplorable. That it is. Deplorable. And destructive, and I would go so far as to say demonic. Is there anything more antithetical, more opposite to the gospel of Jesus Christ than turning a blind eye to the weak and the vulnerable in order to protect the powerful and the privileged? It is the exact opposite of the example that Jesus has set for us. And I would argue that it's perhaps the number one obstacle when we try to share the gospel with people in our country. And they're angry about it. And we can't make, what I mean, when someone comes to you and they're angry about that, I can't make excuses and say, well, you know, in our church we put these safe, oh, you just have to take it. Because it's happened so many times and for too long. But deep down, I, can I just say, man, I am, I am far more angry about it. This is an abomination. And so Paul leans in and he warns young Timothy because he's angry about it too. You know, you ask, like, does the church take this seriously? We go back 2,000 years and the Apostle Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, Timothy, with God as my witness and Jesus Christ and the elect angels, do not get this wrong. Do nothing with partiality. Do nothing with prejudging. I don't care who it is and I don't care what it costs. Do what's right every time. Amen. But of course, ultimately, we don't want there to be fallout. And I don't want you to hear this morning as if in every church this is happening. Because the reality is, and here's what you want to say to the, your unbelieving neighbor, but they're not going to hear you. The, the, the reality is there are so many faithful churches that, that do this right. So many godly leaders who are faithfully just caring for the flock. And taking great risk upon themselves because they see all of this corruption. Ultimately, what you want is you want a church that has godly leaders who take this seriously. And that leads us to the fourth point where Paul concludes. He gives one final instruction, which is, do not appoint an elder hastily. Look at verse 22. He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Timothy is not to be hasty in the laying on of hands. And that expression refers to the commissioning of a person for their office. 
And we know that because in chapter 4, Paul used the same language when he talked about when Timothy was commissioned for his task. Paul's calling upon Timothy and the church to take seriously the responsibility of setting a man apart for the eldership. And Paul says, if you set apart the wrong man, then you, are, you partake in his sin. What's he saying there? I don't think he's suggesting that Timothy is a, you know, a timid guy who, if he, if he sees an elder sinning, is going to say, I want to do that too. No, he's saying, when you set apart an elder for this role, you are holding them up as an example for the church. You're holding them up as a leader to be followed. It stands to reason then, if you hold up a leader to be followed who leads the congregation into heresy and sin and ruin, then Timothy, you share the blame in that. Don't be hasty. Take the time you need. Get this one right. In verses 24 to 25, Paul explains, the sins of some people are conspicuous. That's just a fancy word for clearly visible. Like Levi's nose is conspicuous. I know. It's just... The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. What's Paul saying? He's saying, Timothy, don't judge a book by its cover. You're going to meet some folks who look really impressive from the outside, but then you're going to get to know them and you're going to find out, why it's all a show. So slow down. And, And... On the flip side, Timothy, you're going to meet some people who don't look all that impressive on the outside. You know, the world would never peg this guy as a a leader that you need to put in a position. But as you watch his life, you might discover that that man possesses a serious spiritual maturity that your church would benefit greatly from. Just slow down. Watch, Watch them. Watch his marriage. Watch how he treats his wife. Watch how he raises his kids. Watch how he relates with people in the church. Watch how he uses his gifts to benefit others. Watch how he relates with people in the community. Just watch, Timothy. Watch how he responds when things don't go his way. Sometimes a person might possess a particularly impressive gift, and it will cause you to be tempted to turn a blind eye to some really obvious faults and flaws. We see this often in the pastorate. We often find pastors who are a really gifted communicator, a gifted teacher, So gifted, in fact, that we just turn a blind eye to the fact that they've got a serious pride and anger issue. Uh, But we'll ignore that because he's such a gifted teacher. And Paul's saying, don't do it. Be slow. Be watchful. Pray. Wait. The great Puritan pastor, Martin Bucer, said this of the eldership. He said, the greatest fear of God and the most earnest, earnest diligence are to be employed in the choice and installation of such men. So, again, to be practical, I'm trying to give some application for these things. In a little over a month, we will appoint two men to serve as elders here at Redeemer City Church, Ron Aiken and Efren Bantatwa. And we began the process of praying and seeking in November of last year. And since that time, there have been countless elder meetings and nominating committee meetings and prayer meetings and and interviews and wife questionnaires, and we we have been slowly working our way through this process. You heard their testimonies over a month ago. A week from now, we're going to have those testimonies posted online, so if you missed those, you can hear them. We encourage you to get to know them, to ask many questions you have. you still got over a month to do that. If You'd say, man, I'd like to know them better. But we, we haven't been hasty in this process. 
And as we move forward, let's make sure that our pattern is that we take this slowly and carefully. Uh, I can tell you, having spent a year getting to know these men, God has blessed us with two godly men. And I'm very excited to see the way that he uses them to grow us as a congregation. And when we meet for our annual general meeting in a little over a month, we're going to approve the budget. We're going to approve some guidelines and policies. And that stuff's important. But the thing that we're doing that is of the most importance on that day is we're going to be laying hands on these brothers. And we're going to be commissioning them to serve as elders in this church. And we should be praying about that. And we should be praying for them. And we should be taking that so seriously. They're taking that seriously. I want you to know that. God has blessed us with a good gift. And we want to be good stewards. And as we conclude, and I'm, I'm concluding, and if you're feeling hot, yeah, me too. <laughs> it's hot up here. I, I want to say, admittedly, this passage doesn't naturally lend itself to an altar call. We could try. Um, I won't. This, this is a long game passage. This is a passage that you preach because you care about the church 20 years from now. A passage that you listen to because you care about the church that you're passing on to the next generation. If we take this seriously, I'll tell you some things that I think we'll see in our midst. If we take this seriously, every bit of it, Honoring, protecting, disciplining, appointing. I think we'll see God raise up godly young men in our congregation who, who aspire to be godly leaders, who see that as a blessed privilege and who will take it seriously. I think we'll see a city that may not, may not love the gospel just yet, but that sees the testimony of our church over the years and sees us as a people who, who take sin seriously and who deal with it, even when it's in our leaders. I think we'll see fewer and fewer people in our city who are hardened to the gospel because of the hypocrisy that they've seen in the leadership of the church. It's a long-game investment. You know, we're not going to see the fruit of this tomorrow. We're not going to see the fruit of this a week from now. But as we take this seriously, I truly believe that God will bless us. And for whatever reason, this is the text that God has led us to today on this Baptism Sunday. And so I would even say, if you find yourself here and you would say, man, maybe you didn't even know, but that's the piece. I'm just so fed up with the church. I'm interested in your Jesus, but I'm sick of your church. That was Gandhi's thing, right? Gandhi said, I love your Jesus, I hate your Christians, or something to that effect. Maybe that's you. And I would just say, please, oh, please, oh, please, the church will let you down. Uh, I will let you down. Uh, the people next to you, behind you, they will let you down. Inevitably, we will let you down because we are sinners saved by grace and we fall short. But Jesus is so worthy. And if that's the peace that's keeping you from receiving all that he has for you, then I would just plead with you by the grace of God to, to just resolve to let that go for a moment, to look to him. There's nothing better. There's nothing better. Can I just, can you, there's nothing better in all of existence. I would so love for you to see him today. And to that end, let me, let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just pray for your blessing on, on all of the, the people who are here today. Lord, I, we ask for your blessing on our church. Uh, Lord, we know, we know that we're not going to be the one church that does this perfectly. We know that, Lord. We ask for help. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to just do what's right every time. Whether that's the courage to be slow. Lord, maybe, some, maybe someone's going to get slandered in the years to come. 
And we're just going to need the courage to be slow and to be obedient. Maybe something horrible is going to come out. Lord, we don't know. We want the courage just to do what's right every time. Lord, that we would be a people who, who count the cost. We talk about counting the cost, taking up our cross, and following Christ. And we think about that in our personal lives. But there's a cost corporately, too. It, it is difficult to walk the narrow path. But it is the path that leads to life. Lord, so would you help us? Help us, God, I pray. And Lord, I do pray for, for all those who are here today who have been, who have been hurt. Uh, who are just hardened. And maybe, maybe it's not unbelievers. Maybe it's believers who are here. Maybe it's members and they're just hardened. And it's, and it's not because of you, it's because of us. It's because of sinful men who, who have been in leadership roles and who have just gotten it all wrong. Uh, God, I just pray that you'd heal them. You'd heal their heart, heal their unforgiveness. God, and I pray that you would just grant them the ability to get past the sins of others. Lord, what a shame it would be for us to miss out on the blessing that is ours in Christ because of all the, the people around us stepping on our toes. So, Lord, we ask for your help. I thank you that we have your help. And so, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, soften our hearts to receive, and do what only you can do, I pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?